colored red. This is a podcast that's all about Colorado true crime, and I'm your host, Laura. Um, I have some housekeeping to do. There is this Facebook group that I created back when I created the Facebook page. This was over a year ago, and I sort of forgot about it, and then I went on there, and I found that there's like 20 listeners who want to join the group, and the group's meant to be there for discussion of the cases that I present in the show or discussion of other Colorado true crime or discussion, questions, anything like that. I'll be on there to also contribute to the conversation. Um, so feel welcome to go on there and start posting some stuff. I might go on there and post something just to get the conversation started. But feel free. Um, I just have to say no memes or anything like that. Um you know, all that stuff that we all see just reposted ad nauseum on Instagram. I'm not into it. So um, there's also the Instagram page at Colored Red Podcast that is all images and stuff about the cases that I'm doing. And I post them when I uh, put up my episodes. And there's also just going to be information on there about when the next episode's coming out. And I'll also throw in maybe some factoids about weird Colorado things to go see and stuff like that. So check that out. And then I also have a Patreon. And if you donate just $1 per month, you will get a sticker and a handmade card from me. So it's a cool vinyl sticker. It can go on your car. It's waterproof, that kind of stuff. So check that out. And the Patreon is uh, Colored Red Podcast. So go and check that out. And I'll jump right into this case today. There's not a ton of information about this case. And some of the interview recordings that I have are from a program, so they're going to have other noises over them from the program. But I want to put these in there because it'll give you sort of an idea of this, the kind of guy this was. And there's, and I'm not really into just filling time to make it an hour long or something like that. I'm going to give you the information that I've got. So without further ado, here is serial killer Richard Paul White. Imagine for a moment you're at home and you're watching the news. They're reporting on some kind of crime that has happened and something that they found in a yard. You're sitting there and you're watching helicopter footage as they zoom in and out over a neighborhood that you realize you're familiar with. The news reporter says that they're searching for bodies and the camera zooms down into someone's yard and you realize that you know whose yard it is. It's your family member's yard that they're searching for bodies in. And you stare at the TV, frozen, unable to believe what you're seeing. This is exactly what happened to Danielle White, sister of Richard Paul White, a man that his sister and everybody would find out is a serial killer who confessed to killing six people in Denver, Colorado between the years of 2001 and 2003. On September 10th, 2003, Richard Paul White was arrested in Pike National Forest at a campground about 12 miles west of Castle Rock. He was turned in by his own sister, who drove him out there thinking that he had accidentally shot his friend and needed to lay low for a little while. And Danielle is the perspective that we have on Richard and his whole life. Danielle is spelled D-A-N-Y-A-L-L, and I'm thinking that it's pronounced Danielle. It might be some variation of Danielle. So I'm going to say Danielle. 
but Danielle and her brother Richard were incredibly close. She calls him R.P., They had a lot of fun as children, and especially as teenagers, they would go fishing together, they would drink when they were underage, just sort of stuff that you do when you're hanging out with your family and you're hanging out with your friends in the woods and stuff like that. Um, But Danielle also remembers moments in her childhood that she didn't think of until later that were a little bit odd. Um, Like one day she remembers waking up as a kid to Richard sitting in her room and just staring at her while she slept. She occasionally would wake up and ask him what he was doing and he would just say that he was watching her sleep. She'd get up out of the room and leave and he'd just stay sitting in there staring at her bed. At the time, Danielle didn't make too much of any of this, but everything started coming together when he came out as being a murderer. And she started to piece things together from their past. The family wasn't particularly religious, but Richard obsessed over the Bible. And in particularly, he obsessed over the worst parts of the Bible, all the gore and just, you know, the Bible's packed full of just the weirdest stuff. And he obsessed over it. He once smashed an ACDC album that someone gave to him and because someone told him that it was devil music and he thought that the devil was trying to communicate with him through the ACDC album. So it's almost like he did this reverse uh, satanic panic thing where he was obsessed with Satan in the way that he was afraid of him. Um, Danielle also had this parakeet named Ginger when she was a kid and Richard came in one day before school and just snapped the bird's neck right in front of her and threw it on the ground for the cat to eat and he said that he did it so that she would mess up on her final test at school that day and this is just the kind of evil stuff that he would pull he would just snap and be ruthless and hurt people and never apologize or think anything of it but he could also be incredibly loving and an, an incredibly protective brother Danielle grew up with him never fully understanding what his actions meant And she started to understand that there was a major problem when she was 19 years old. And she got a phone call from one of her sisters telling Danielle that Richard had HIV. For an entire year, Richard led his family on to believe that he had HIV. And they all struggled with this thought that he was going to die in this horrible, long, drawn-out way unless he went through costly medical treatment for the rest of his life. And then one day after Danielle asked him how his treatments were going, he just up and laughed at her. And he told her that he didn't have HIV. He just wanted to freak everybody out for his own personal amusement. So Richard lied, and he lied a lot about huge things. Like he would tell his sisters that a friend of his had died and that he needed money to attend the funeral, only for his sister to run into the guy who was supposed to die uh, months later. He also lied about committing crimes, about robbing stores, and about anything outlandish that he could think of. When he drank, he especially loved to tell stories about killing people. He had vivid details about weapons he used and methods, but his sister Danielle never believed him, and she thought it was actually sad. He had a history about lying about people dying and about lying about crimes that he had committed so she just didn't believe any of it um their childhood and everything leading up to when they were teenagers is largely a mystery in the sense that 
it's a mystery in terms of stuff I can find out in the sense that we don't really, I don't really know much about his parents or about what they were doing or about who he lived with, but his whole childhood and his entire upbringing is described as abusive and incredibly abusive. His defense lawyer would later come out and mention that he, it was completely abusive, but there's no records of that because we'll find out that he didn't actually go to trial for um, the crimes that he committed. But I did end up pulling up some interesting information about Richard's father online, whose name is Randolph Allen White, but everyone called him Duke. In Casta, New Mexico, in 1988, Duke White stopped off at the house of a former co-worker and friend of his to check up on him. And he was checking up on him because he hadn't seen him in like a week. He noticed that the dog in the front yard was skinny and malnourished. He noticed that the yard was completely unkempt, which wasn't like his friend to keep his yard that unkempt. And there was this sewage-like rotting odor emanating from inside the house. Duke White went into the neighbor's house and began sort of interrogating him about when was the last time that he saw anyone at his friend's house. And Duke White eventually went over there, somehow got in, and then came back to the neighbor and told him that they were dead. The neighbor refused to call the police for reasons that are not known, and so Duke left and went to the house of another friend and convinced him to call the police. Duke White met with the police at the home when they arrived. Duke told them that he knocked on the door, that he saw a screen was broken and entered the house to find the floor covered in this brownish, gooey liquid. He then saw the decomposing bodies of Michael Riddle and Keith Lanwermeyer, who had been bludgeoned to death and who had been decomposing for a week at that point in the hot weather in New Mexico. Inside the house, there were also 200 marijuana plants, and most of them were pretty much dead from neglect with their lamps still on. On the northeast side of the home, um, the two bodies of the men were found laying on the ground in what police described as this red and yellowish liquid. Maggots had already hatched on the bodies and eaten parts of their flesh, and one man lay near the kitchen in this semi-fetal position on this big piece of foam. His head was in two blood-soaked pillows while his body was covered by a blanket. The other body in the room was face down in the middle of the living room with his shirt pulled up above his waist. And I don't really quite understand that description because isn't your shirt always like above your waist? But sure. Police knew that Duke White was their key to solving the case. And they felt that he was holding back information. He owned a small store in Mesita, Colorado. And his wife, Constance, who I don't think is the mother of Richard Paul White and his sisters, but I'm not entirely sure. They both own the store, and this store also served as the local post office. So that gives you an idea of how small this town is that they live in in Colorado. Uh, Police came by the store, and Duke actually refused to let his wife talk to the police. Keep in mind that this whole town and everything in it was... Um, quite a big drug town at the time and there was a lot of violence going on related to drugs in this town and in New Mexico in this sort of area so they basically brought in Duke White for questioning and that's when it got really weird at first he refused to let police tape his interview 
and he refused to tell them what he was doing during the time that he waited to call the police after finding the bodies. Then he agreed to let them record the conversation, but he told them that he was going to discuss all of it with a nearby tree, like a tree out in the yard, and he told police that they were welcome to come listen to him having this conversation with a tree. He told the tree that the two victims were selling marijuana in Cuesta. So naturally, these two friends were not giving out this information to everybody, and they only told a select few friends about growing and selling marijuana, who they allowed to visit their home. At some point or another, they began to annoy these people that lived around them, and White described how the men started stealing from their neighbors, and he used the phrase, you don't shit in your own backyard, and he's telling the tree this out in the yard of this police department. And so this is all the information they have, this information that he confided to the tree. And this case is still unsolved to this day. But what they did end up uncovering was more information about Duke White, who was again the father of Richard Paul White, and he'll come up a little bit later. He had a history in law enforcement, and he had held different positions in Colorado. Interestingly enough, he held a fairly prestigious title in 1980 as Adams County Chief Investigator. But one year after he took that job, he was forced to resign when he was accused of molesting a girl. He was also a representative for a local religious group known as the Ghost Clan. And this was a branch of the Native American Church of North of America, this is a religion from the Americas that combines Christianity with traditional Native American beliefs, along with the usage of peyote. And that's the cactus that induces hallucinations. Basically, at some point during his stint in Colorado, this ghost clan had some dispute with a landowner in Colorado over public use of a road around Costilla. And White was the face of this resistance. Um, the group claimed it was in violation of their religious freedom under the American Indian Religious Freedom Act of 1978, a law passed that basically protected the free exercise of Native American religions. And White openly voiced his protests against the fencing in this area by trespassing on this owner's property and doing various demonstrations. What Duke White would end up alluding to was that childhood was traumatic for his children. Duke White claims that his children were abused relentlessly by their stepfather, a man I can assume his wife or one of his former wives went on to marry before Duke discovered the bodies of his friends in 1988. And Danielle can back up this claim that their childhood wasn't completely rosy and completely good. And that it was also compounded with this fact that she had to deal with her brother lying constantly about everything. And he was the man who told everyone that he murdered people. And just no one believed it. Um, he told neighbors. He told his girlfriends. He told bartenders and people at restaurants. He told everybody. And most people knew he would make stuff up. And nobody believed his stories. And nobody ever called the police about them. He told his girlfriend that he had killed people and buried them in his yard. His girlfriend came to Danielle and asked her if she thought the stories were true. Danielle instructed her that Richard made stories up. And she basically had this thought that 
if you're going to kill people, why would you go around telling everybody that you did it? It's just, it's definitely not true. So the next time that Danielle saw Richard's girlfriend, she came running into her house, pushed Danielle into the bathroom with her and locked the door just as Richard came into the house and began screaming and pounding on this bathroom door. They sat in the bathroom for hours, listening to Richard yell and scream at them, and Danielle then opened the door to Richard pointing a gun right in her face. He said, she wants to end it, so let's end it. She tries to bargain with him, and he turned the gun on himself at this point. She asked him what her kids would think when they came home and saw him dead, and he dropped the gun. Because if there's one thing about Richard Paul White, she says it's that he loved her children, and that he would never do anything to his nieces and nephews. But their family was just never the same after that. Her Danielle's relationship with Richard never recovered from this experience. And so her next insane encounter with Richard is on September 8th, 2003. Danielle got a call in the middle of the night, and it was Richard. And he told her that he needed to come see her. He told her that he had accidentally killed someone while he was cleaning a gun with his friend and they were smoking pot and they were drinking and the gun just accidentally went off. He told her to get some of his camping equipment from her house, some food and rations and pack a bag of his clothing so that she could pick him up and take him to the mountains. So Danielle picks him up and dropped him off in the Pike National Forest with the promise that she would be back the next day with more food. And at this point, she just wants to get him away and out of her out of her life in that moment. As she turned around to head back to her car after dropping him off, she heard this unmistakable sound of a gun being cocked behind her. Later, Richard would maintain that he must have accidentally stepped on a twig, but she still knows to this day that he cocked the gun as if he were considering shooting his sister. So she came home, he didn't shoot her, and found an article in the paper about the death of 27-year-old Jason Reichardt. They were claiming in the paper that the police were considering his death a suicide. And Danielle couldn't bear to think that this man's family thought that he had committed suicide. So she debated for a long time and sat and stared at the phone and then she ended up calling police to tell them that it was actually an accidental death and told them where her brother was hiding out in the woods because at this point she thought that he really had just accidentally killed this guy. Police had also gotten several other tips about Jason's death. Um, Jason's boss called the police on September 8th when this reliable, healthy employee didn't show up for work and couldn't be reached on his cell phone. Reichardt reportedly worked with White several years ago and helped him get a job at a print shop in Denver earlier in the month. And so on September 10th, 2003, Richard was arrested by a SWAT team that descended upon the campground in Pike National Forest. And in Richard's typical fashion, he started telling the police anything and everything. White told them a different story about the shooting of Jason. He said that he shot him while in the process of trying to steal his car so that he could chase down some drug dealers who had stolen from him. Almost immediately, with very little prompting, Richard also told the police that he had killed before and that there were bodies buried in the backyard of his home in Park Hill.
Victoria Lynn Turpin and 27-year-old Annalisha Maria Gonzalez, who were buried in his backyard. He also confessed to the murder of a woman who he picked up from a bus stop near Colfax Avenue and how he took her back to his house and strangled her with a cord before driving her remains all the way to Mesita, Colorado, where he buried her near his father's house, his father, Duke White. He described the woman as tall and dark-skinned, who was blind in her right eye. He told the police that he knew he was fated to kill her because he had a tattoo on his body of a similar-looking woman. This woman has since been identified as Tori Marie Foster, who was 25 and was studying cosmetology when she was killed. Investigators used the DNA from Tori's nine-year-old daughter to verify a match to the body that was found, what they describe as somewhere near Duke White's property. And his involvement in these cases is unknown. At this point, he's not involved in any of these killings, but I find it interesting that he drove all the way down there to bury her near his father's house. So part of the deal that police made with Richard was to get his help to find other victims in exchange for no death sentence. And part of the deal for finding Tori is that he wouldn't be charged with her death. He also needed to plead guilty to the murder of the two women in his backyard. And this plea deal that they gave is similar to the one cut for the um, Green River Slayer that was also in 2003, Gary Ridgway. Um, who was given life sentences in exchange for helping authorities find numerous bodies of women he murdered near Seattle. And he ended up killing 48 women. And he helped them find a number of their bodies. And Richard White would later confess to killing two other women whose bodies have not yet been found because he claimed that he dumped them in a river near La Junta, Colorado. So this is the moment where all of Richard Paul White's stories became a reality. All of the blabbing this guy did to anyone and everyone about who he killed all turned out to be true. Richard would say that he killed sex workers because nobody cared about them, as he claimed. He said he would lie and he would lead his victims on. He would sort of mock them, asking them if their mothers ever told them to not get into the car with strangers. And he would pick up the women and take them to his house. He would control them by knocking them unconscious or pointing a gun at them. During this time, he would force them to perform sex acts. And when he wanted a break, he would make them get down and pray for forgiveness for being promiscuous women. Making women pray and making women pray with him was something that he liked to do a lot. And this probably goes back to his obsession with the Bible when he was a kid. He seemed to have this idea that if he prayed and they prayed together, that maybe he would be forgiven for all of this. Maybe all of this was actually not as bad as he thought. It was sort of his way of mentally disconnecting himself from what was going on. 
He would also taunt them with the knowledge that he had other women buried in his backyard and let them know that they would soon be joining them. When he went to sleep, he would handcuff the women to him. And this torture and rape would go on for hours and sometimes even days. Police located a number of women who he either let go or who had escaped for reasons that no one will ever know. Richard could be controlled in certain ways. It seems that certain angles of sympathy would actually bring him down. Um, His sister on two different occasions would say something about her kids in some sort of attempt to get him to stop from killing himself or killing her or going on some kind of rampage. He seemed to have some soft spots that you could get to if you said the right things. And maybe these women said certain things to get away and other women didn't say those certain things. Richard would end up pleading guilty to two counts of murder and the deaths of 32-year-old Victoria Lynn Turpin and 27-year-old Annalisha Maria Gonzalez, who were buried in his backyard. And you can find the address of this home online. I'm not going to say it on the podcast, but you can find it. It's somewhere over near the zoo. He was also charged with three counts of sexual assault on women who ended up coming forward to say that he had tortured and raped them before inexplicably letting them go. At his sentencing hearing in 2004, Richard mouthed the words, I'm sorry, to the victims' families who were in the courtroom. He was given life in prison without parole, and in a separate case in 2004, Richard pled guilty to the shooting death of his roommate, 27-year-old Jason Reichart. Richard would later tell Danielle, and this is super messed up, that the reason he told people about killing people all the time was because deep down inside of him, he thought that someone would stop him. He wanted someone to believe him and stop him. He especially wanted Danielle to make sure he was stopped, and he thought that she would be the one to do it. So it's like he wanted her to think that all of this happened because she didn't stop him, and she didn't believe him. He said, hey, I told you over and over, you didn't believe me. You could have told the cops before more people would have been killed. Yet you chose to think I was lying and that's on you. My thought is that if he truly wanted to be stopped, he would have told the police himself, you know? So this guilt trip on his family members and the people he told his stories to is just another way of him manipulating the situation to remove blame from himself. Um, following the phone call that put her brother in jail, Danielle was shunned by some of her family members, and she spent years dealing with alcoholism to try to forget all of this that happened, and dealing with the guilt that she ended up feeling for not telling anyone about her brother's ridiculous stories. And, you know, if she's going to feel guilty, then the bartenders at the bar he was at, and the random people he told on the streets, it's just like, no one believed these dumb stories, because he would just tell everybody about them. So Richard also has another sister named Maureen who saw the DVD confession and actually started hurting herself as a way to deal with the pain that was going on. So I can only hope that his sisters can find some kind of peace and know that there was absolutely nothing that they could do about this or that they should have done about it because it's not their responsibility. And Richard hasn't stopped talking, even in jail. 
I think he enjoys the attention that some people give him, and some people write him letters. And here's a letter that you can find online, but this is his response, I'm thinking, to some woman basically writing to him. And he says, thank you for the letter and the picture. You're very easy to look at, but I'm sure you already knew that. I dated a stripper once. In fact, she was my last girlfriend before I got arrested. I toured with the idea of killing her, but in the end, all of my girlfriends were spared. Although I did bury two dead prostitutes in my ex-girlfriend's backyard. I would have loved to see the look on her face. LOL. Or the look on her snooty father's face, for that matter. Is that terrible? Because honestly, I don't really care anymore. LOL. That makes me laugh. But I have a sick sense of humor. I was going to take Tori Foster, a victim of mine, anyway. I was going to take her head and drop it out of my car window on the main drag in Denver. But the dogs got to her first and took off with her head. It was never found. But I thought it would have been funny for hookers' heads to start showing up on Colfax, the drag. I'm laughing as I write. LOL. I miss driving, shooting, and I miss TV. You can have one in here, but I can't afford one. I draw and trade for stamps, deodorant, and such. Prison really sucks. I've smoked a little weed since I've been in here, but I do take psych meds. They can be fun sometimes. So lovely sort of trailer trash dude, right? So remember Duke White, Richard's father, who found the dead bodies in 1988? He was arrested in 2005 for selling DVDs of his son's confession to killing multiple women. The name of this DVD is Denver's Lincoln Park Strangler. And yes, that's Lincoln Park as in the band. He was charging $39.95 for what he described as a part of the confession of his son for the murder and torture of five women. He also claimed that there would be a second portion released, one in which Richard Paul White talks to God while sitting alone in the interview room. He indicated that he thought the videos would dispel misconceptions about his son and that he believed his son had a mental illness brought on by the abuse from his stepfather. He claimed that he would donate the proceeds of the sales to the victims' families, but later admitted that 75% of the profits would actually go to his own grandchildren, who had testified against Richard in court. Randolph White, also known as Duke, the man who talked to trees, passed away in 2015. And at no point did any of the victim's family members ever hear from Duke White about the proceeds from the sales of the DVDs. And Colorado does have a law that prevents anybody from profiting off of a murder that they or a family member were involved with. So, that's the story. Again, I told you guys it was going to be a sort of shorter one today. And I'm going to have a, a new case for you guys next month. And I will have a new historical case for you guys here in a couple weeks. So stay tuned and be safe out there this summer, you guys. <laughs>